Daniel 9, verses 1 to 19. This is God's word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways, uh, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for, for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is God's word. What a wonderful prayer. Remember, uh, in Daniel 9, we are now in the reign of Darius again. So remember, uh, chapter 5, we saw Belshazzar uh, die 
and Darius the Mede from the Medo-Persian Empire takes over, but then we went back in time from chapters 6 and 7, and then chapter 8, we go back into the Medo-Persian Empire. So the context here is the Medo-Persian Empire, and we read from verse 2 that Daniel perceives in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now remember, Daniel is well into his 80s. He is an old man at this stage. He's been in Babylon most of his life from a young boy to now in his 80s, somewhere in that ballpark. He's been reading the prophet Jeremiah and he knows that Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah, says something about 70 years for God's people. So let's look at that. So in Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29, we'll look firstly at chapter 25. These are the explicit mentions of 70 years for God's people. In Jeremiah 25 through verses 1 to 14, we have this prophetic word that Daniel would have been reading through He, of course, didn't have verse numbers then, but he would have been reading through the scroll uh, of Jeremiah and understanding it. And he knows that there are, uh, that God has has exiled his people because of their disobedience. And then notice Jeremiah 25 verses 3 to 5. We read, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, But you have not listened. This is God talking through Jeremiah to his people Israel. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and prophets, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. So he's calling them back to faithfulness so that he wouldn't have to exile them. But then he says from verse 11, The reality is this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, then if you go a few chapters later to chapter 29, this is where uh, Jeremiah actually writes a letter specifically to the exiles. So they're already in exile and God uh, prompts Jeremiah to write a letter which is in the context where we get that famous uh, passage, 29.11, which always comes up. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 29, in verse 10, the Lord, uh, through Jeremiah, says, When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So this is specifically written to the exiles and God's saying, Hey, when 70 years are done... I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That is back into the land of Israel, the land of Jerusalem. So this is what Daniel is reading. And and because as Daniel is reading this, this is in about the year 539 BC, sometime around then. Remember, the exile started in about 605 BC. So this is about 70 years. So Daniel's reading this and he's realizing, wow, it's got to be soon. The 70 years are coming to an end. And then from verses 3 to 19 of this passage in Daniel chapter 9, we have this beautiful prayer that is his response when he comes to the conclusion, oh, wow, the 70 years are about to end. God's going to fulfill his promise and bring us back into the land. And it leads Daniel to pray. Now, uh, 
we're just going to look at the prayer today and leave, as I mentioned, verses 20 and on for next week. I want to give four principles that we can learn from Daniel's prayer. But first, the first thing I want to just cover is God's sovereignty in prayer. So notice that the immediate conclusion from Daniel, after he's been reading the prophet Jeremiah, and God through Jeremiah says, after 70 years, I'm going to fulfill my promise and I'm going to bring you back to the land. And Daniel knows that God is a promise keeper. But what happens? Daniel prays. He knows that God is sovereign. He knows that God is totally able to fulfill his word and keep his promises. But his response when he realizes this is to pray. He doesn't simply sit back and relax and kind of say, beauty, we're at the end of the 70 years. Can't wait for God to actually bring this in. I'll just kind of settle down, uh, enjoy the rest of Babylonian life or now Medo-Persian life. Actually, he is moved to prayer. And what a prayer it is. This uh, covers the classic question that, pe- that often comes up. If God is sovereign, why pray? If God is in control, why do we need to pray? Let me first establish two undeniable truths about this and then give two reasons as to why we pray though God is sovereign before we then look at the principles of prayer. So two undeniable truths. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. God can't be just a little bit sovereign. He can't be sovereign over uh, some area and not the rest. He is the creator of everything. He is sovereign, which means he is in control. He ordains all things that come to pass and is never charged with wrongdoing. He is sovereign over every single thing. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every move is from the Lord. God is sovereign. First truth. Second undeniable truth. God commands us to pray. God commands us to pray. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and it will be given to you. Even notice Jesus as he is teaching the Lord's prayer. He assumes that there will be prayer because he says, when you pray, this is how you are to do it. So there is a command that we are to pray. So these are two indisputable truths. God is absolutely sovereign and God commands us to pray. Now, two reasons as to why we pray knowing that God is sovereign. First, God's normative means of bringing about his promises is through prayer. God's normative means of bringing about his promises is through the prayers of his people. Just as God both predestines those to salvation and he predestines the means by which people would be saved, namely, specifically through We, you and me, his followers, proclaiming the good news so that faith would come by hearing and hearing by the message of Christ. So God predestines those to salvation. He also predestines the means by which they would come to salvation, which is through us going out and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. In a similar way, prayer is the appointed means from the sovereign God to give us what he promises in his word. This is a a quote from John Calvin talking about this. He says, prayer is where we directly remind God of his promises so that he may prove that what we believed on the basis of his word alone was neither false nor futile. Thus, we understand that whatever God invites us to expect from him, we are also commanded to ask for in prayer. So he says, prayer is actually God's means 
for us to prove what he promises in his word is true. It's actually God saying, try me. Like he says in Malachi, try me, see if I won't open the storehouse. It's actually God saying, try me, test and approve that I am good. I'm a good father. The act of us praying and asking of him allows us to experience the full reality of God bringing about his promises as opposed to him just raining down blessings from heaven without us asking of them. Think of the reality of parents to a child. When does a child ever actually grow in gratitude or thankfulness or experience the reality of their parents' provision when a parent just gives them everything before they even ask for? The act of asking actually allows us to experience the full reality of God's goodness, of his fatherly kindness, as he gives what he promises through us asking these things of him. So God's normative means for bringing about his promises is actually through us asking them in prayer. Secondly, prayer is the place of intimacy with our Lord. So God has his normative means of bringing about his promises through prayer. And then secondly, prayer is the place of intimacy with our Lord. Prayer is not specifically for God's sake. In fact, you'd say it's arguably solely for our sake. Prayer is for our sake. Prayer is God inviting us to prove his goodness. It's of course not as if God forgets something and when we pray, we're reminding him. He knows everything. Prayer is actually for our sake. We are able to prove his goodness when we come and ask for that which he promises. In this place of prayer, we are being shaped. There is an intimacy that is happening. There's a spiritual reality as we pray. So although God is sovereign and he knows every word of ours before they come off our tongue, we pray because it is in that place of prayer whereby God shapes us by his spirit. We actually come to know his will and his goodness in that place of prayer. So prayer is God's means of bringing about his promises. And then that means gives us a greater intimacy. We experience all of the joys of this wonderful relationship with our God as we come to him in prayer. And this is what we see here in Daniel. God's sovereignty leads us to pray. If you do not pray, you probably do not understand God's sovereignty. Now, four principles from Daniel's prayer as we work through the passage here. The first principle, godly prayer is soaked in humility and repentance. Godly prayer is soaked in humility and repentance. Look at verse 3. Daniel is pleading for mercy. He is uh, fasting in sackcloth and ashes. Or verse 5, he says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and rules. In verses 7 and 8, notice that he says multiple times, We are in open shame to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands which you have driven them, because of the treachery they have committed against you. So to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. There is an utter humility in Daniel to say, we deserve all of this. We are in shame. We have acted wickedly. We are treacherous people. There's not a single hint of pride in this prayer. And it is in direct contrast to the way Israel would have been described and is described in the Bible before their exile. 
Notice specifically the theme of shame here. Daniel says multiple times, we're in open shame. We're a disgrace. Daniel recognizes that he and his people are in utter shame. In verse 16, he says, we are a byword, which is to say we are scorned. We're like a pile of trash around these neighboring nations. There's nothing virtuous about us. Now, notice this in contrast to Jeremiah chapter 3. So if you do have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 3, um, a key book that's very relevant for the exile. In Jeremiah 3, this is before, slightly before the exile, and God is rebuking his people because they have whored themselves out to idols and they have polluted his land. And in verses 2 to 3 of Jeremiah chapter 3, God specifically says... To his people, Israel, you have polluted the land. This is about halfway through to verse two. You've polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore, the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. This is quite confronting language here. So God is actually saying what you most need now, Israel, is to be ashamed You should be in utter shame. That is what you need. And see, one of the lies of our culture is that we think shame is always a bad thing. We think shame is always a bad thing. Now, let me be very clear. There is what you might say a right and wrong shame or maybe a necessary and an unnecessary shame. So a necessary shame is a shame that realizes in some way we have walked contrary to God's law. It is usually connected with guilt that comes because we have transgressed. We've done something wrong. And so we should feel shame. Like we've lied about something. We've spoken about someone behind their back. We've gossiped. We should feel shame about that. These are all connected with guilt in some way. And these are good things to be shameful about because the shame is there to drive you to change. The shame is there to drive you to repent. If you feel no shame, you will not change. And this is the worst thing of our culture is we try and uh, remove shame. So, of course, no one changes. No one actually uh, becomes better because there's no shame. We just say, no, you're just a product of your environment. It's not your fault. Everything's okay. Just keep doing what you're doing. And this is the worst thing totally the opposite of what God is saying of Israel, where he's saying, you need to be ashamed. You should be utterly ashamed. In contrast to this, there is an unnecessary shame, which would be something that, of course, doesn't contradict uh, the word of God. Like if I walked in today and I tripped over right there and things went flying everywhere and I would probably feel a bit embarrassed and I would feel kind of a bit of shame, but that's okay. That's an unnecessary shame. I haven't actually transgressed any law. I'm just clumsy. So that's a a different type of shame. Now, the problem with our day is that we have confused these. We have confused these. We just all lump them into one so that all of a sudden we think that shame is a bad thing. There are things in this day that we are not ashamed about that we really should be ashamed of. We really should have a sense of shame. We should be ashamed at the level of our devotion that we offer to our Lord if there are countless things in our life that we offer way more devotion to. They take way more of our time and our energy. We should be ashamed of that level of devotion. We should be ashamed of foul language, of gossip, of dishonoring our Savior. We should be ashamed of these 
things. If there's lingering sin in our lives, there should be a sense of shame over that. And that shame rightfully brings you to God's throne of grace in prayer, which is what we see Daniel doing here. And notice this prayer, if I stick with our friend John Calvin again, he gives this prayer that I think very helpfully demonstrates the pathway of shame. And actually he is asking for a right kind of shame that would drive him to true repentance. So just listen to this prayer. Calvin says, as you blot out our vices and blemishes, extend and increase the graces of your Holy Spirit to us so that as we acknowledge our unrighteousness with all our heart, we might feel the sorrow that gives birth to true repentance, which as we mortify our sins may produce fruits of righteousness and innocence pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's actually praying that God would give him sorrow that God would give him true sorrow over sin so that it would give birth to genuine repentance and bear fruits of righteousness. Godly prayer desires to be humbled to the point where we might feel such sorrow over our sin that we actually, by the Spirit's power, are able to put to death that sin and bear fruit that would honor the Lord. This is what we see here in Daniel. It is soaked with humility and repentance, a prayer which recognizes the shameful state and humbles themselves before God pleading for mercy. Godly prayer is soaked in humility and repentance. The second principle, godly prayer takes ownership. So notice that Daniel takes ownership in verses 9 to 10. He says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Verse 10, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Now, remember, this is Daniel, who in chapter 6 is listed as blameless. He was spared because he trusted in the Lord and Daniel was actually found blameless. This is Daniel, who in chapter 1 resolved not to defile himself. He has been faithful. He has been a man of integrity. And yet here, he has the humility to actually identify with his brothers and sisters of Israel and takes ownership of sin in his life and in their life and sees himself as part of the problem. How easy would it have been for Daniel to just say, you know what, I've, I've clearly been the straight A student here. I've been the one who didn't defile myself. I did everything right. I've been upholding the integrity of Israel by my position in Babylon. I'm the faithful guy. No, he sees himself within the context of his brothers and sisters. So rather than distancing himself in pride, he actually confesses the gross sins of his people. Now, probably about 10 years ago, I would have been able to say that without having to say this next thing. But because of the culture we are in, it should be very clearly said that we shouldn't falsely claim we have sinned where we don't genuinely think we have, nor should individuals feel the need to confess certain sins of other people simply because you are of the same race or sex as that person, as though we need to uh, repent of our whiteness or something ridiculous like that. So that's obviously not what this is saying, where you take ownership of sin, right? But the point is that what we see in Daniel is a posture or instinct toward taking ownership of sin. It's a humble posture. That, that is so in step 
with walking in faithfulness that he is so aware of sin. And that's the reality. The closer we get to the Lord, the more aware we are of our fallenness, the more aware we are of our sin. When we are not aware of sin in our lives, it's probably because we have strayed far enough away from the Lord that we are no longer aware of that sin. So it is a dangerous thing if our instinct is to avoid ownership, if our instinct is to actually distance ourselves from the problem. Godly prayer takes ownership of wrong, which we see in Daniel. Third principle, godly prayer becomes other-oriented, very related to taking ownership. Godly prayer becomes other-oriented. So we've established Daniel does not isolate himself. He doesn't actually stay distant from Israel's problems, but rather he is led to pray on behalf of his people. And remember that Daniel is into his 80s by now. Like he knows that he's probably at the end of his innings. Like this is, he's pretty close to finally just being with the Lord. I don't think he's under any assumption that he's actually going to be present for several more decades of Israel's restoration. I think he probably knows that he's at the end of his life. And yet he is pleading on behalf of his own people for their future. Even think about the visions that Daniel has throughout Daniel. They are mostly concerned with things far off into the future that aren't going to concern him. The little horn we went over in chapter 8, he probably knows that's, that's not going to be my problem. That's years, that's centuries down the track. But yet he is, he, he is driven with emotion. He is appalled at the visions, thinking about what it's going to do for his own people. Daniel's prayer is not self-preserving or self-centered in any way. It is totally other-oriented. And I think what we will see next is specifically as God-oriented, which then drives us to become other-oriented. Now, we can safely assume that Daniel, of course, spent time praying for himself. He was in a rhythm of prayer and would have been praying for himself, and so should we all. But the reality is that godly prayer will eventually lead outward to become other-oriented. Godly prayer is concerned with brothers and sisters in your community. Godly prayer is concerned with the city in which we live. Godly prayer is concerned with issues that are beyond our immediate circle. We can imagine that Daniel took very seriously the words of Jeremiah chapter 29 in the letter to the exiles, where the letter actually says, hey, um, seek the welfare of this city. So build houses, continue life, actually be good citizens and seek the welfare of this city. Talking about Babylon, for in its welfare, you will find yours. So Daniel probably would have been praying for Babylon as he is in his senior role, actually seeking the welfare of that city because he knew that that's what he was told in their welfare, he would find his. So when we think about our own prayers, we apply this to ourselves. How often do you pray for others beyond your immediate circle? How often do we follow Jesus's words and actually pray for our enemies? How often does it extend beyond a self-preserving way of prayer? Do we as a church pray on behalf of the other churches throughout Canberra, asking that they would be as faithful, that they would be a faithful witness and that those who are not faithful would be called to repentance? Or do we pray for the leaders of Canberra, 
regardless of how much we disagree with them, do we follow Paul's words and do we actually pray in this way? Godly prayer becomes other-oriented. Now, the fourth and final principle, which I think is the most important principle here. Godly prayer is always doxological. Remember, doxological means words of grace, um, words of glory, sorry, words of glory or words of praise, really. So godly prayer is always doxological, which means that it, it is always to do with ascribing glory and honor to God. That is the reality. Godly prayer is always doxological. And Daniel's prayer is fundamentally doxological. It is utterly concerned with God's glory. And there are two primary ways that we'll see this as we uh, finish this off. The first way that we see that his prayer is doxological is that his petition is based on God's character. So notice again, verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. If we then look at verses 16 and 17, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts. Verse 17, now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. God's perfect character becomes the basis for Daniel's prayer. God's perfect character becomes part of the basis for Daniel's prayer. This clearly displays that the only faultless character in this story, in all of this story, is God himself. God's perfect, righteous character will be the only hope that Daniel has that he will hear Daniel's prayer and deliver them. It has nothing to do with his own character, nothing to do with the character of Israel, nothing to do with any worth Israel has in and of themselves. This is very clear in verse 18. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. It is totally to do with God's merciful and righteous character. That's why we're bringing these pleas before you. We realize that we have nothing to offer. If you base it on our character, we will be destined to hell. It is totally based upon God's character. And Daniel specifically is under no false assumption that because he is blameless, because he didn't defile himself, maybe he'll earn some points. Daniel doesn't bring any of that to the table. He is taking ownership of his sin. He is recognizing that there's nothing in him that is going to earn God's favor. Rather, it is because of God's righteousness and is because of his mercy and is because of his name. That's the basis for his prayer, God's merciful and perfect character. And that glorifies God. When we ask things of him based entirely upon his character, knowing that there's nothing that we bring that glorifies God, when we know 100% that the basis by which he will answer anything is because of his perfect character, and specifically because we are asking in the name of Jesus Christ, because of his loving and merciful character. It's why you see this so often through the Psalms. The psalmist is praying and the psalmist prays, Lord, according to your steadfast love, according to your mercy, hear my prayers. Psalm 25, 7, I, I love this of David. He says, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, but according to your steadfast love, remember me. 
for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. It's like David is saying, don't, not only do not remember my youth or my transgressions or my rebellious ways, don't just blot them out, Lord. But also, when you think of me, don't think of me according to my love for you. When you think of me, think of me according to your love. Because your love is concrete. Your love is unfailing. That's something that I can be totally secure in. So when you think of me, Lord, just almost just forget me for a moment and think of me based on your steadfast love. Then I can be secure. You know, it's almost like saying in the most reverent way, God, I know that you are too good to not hear me. You're too good. Your character is too perfect. And I'm coming to you not because I bring anything to the table. I'm coming to you because I'm trusting in your perfect and merciful character, which I see in the cross of Christ. And I know you are too good to not hear me. When that is done with a comprehension of God's perfect character as the basis of your petition, that brings glory to God. It is totally God honoring. It's all about him and nothing about you. The second way. And final way that we see that his prayer is doxological is that it is concerned with God's reputation. This is all in verses 16 to 19. It is concerned with God's reputation. From verses 16 to 19, we see that Daniel's concern is basically the fact that he and his city and the people of Israel bear the name of Jesus, bear the name of Yahweh, bear the name of God. And they have been destroyed and they're mocked. So verse 16, Daniel says, your people have become a byword among all who are around us, which again is like saying, hey, we are seen as a pile of trash. We're seen as worthless and we bear your name. So you're seen as worthless. So come and restore us, Lord. He says in verses 17 to 18, your sanctuary is desolate. It's abandoned. Your city is ruined. So therefore, as Daniel brings the petitions before the Lord, he says, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, Lord. Don't do it for our sake, for your own sake. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary. Again, in verse 19, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God. He's just saying, save us because your city and your people bear your name. So come and save us. We bear your name. So whatever we look like is a reflection upon you. So come and make us glad in you again. Come and restore us so that we would then rejoice in you so that your city would be restored, your people would be restored, and it would bring glory to you. This is the basis for Daniel's petition. In a bold way, he's saying, think about your reputation, God. Think about your reputation among the peoples. It's the same as Moses when uh, God says to Israel in Exodus and Numbers, hey, I'm finished with these guys. Moses, you and I will go off. And Moses says, no, no, no. Think about the Egyptians. They will think that you are unable to deliver your people. Think about your reputation, God. God is concerned for his name. He is concerned for his reputation. 
So our prayers must likewise be concerned for his name and his reputation. That is the right place of prayer. That is doxological prayer. When we pray with a deep concern for God's name and reputation, and that becomes amazingly liberating for us. Daniel is asking the Lord to deliver them, and it has everything to do with God's reputation. Everything to do with God's reputation, which is always linked to his glory. And what is the one thing that God will never yield to another? He will never give his glory to another. That is what he promises in Isaiah. My glory, I will not give to another. So when we are praying, Lord, glorify yourself. We know that is safe. We know that he will answer because he is concerned with his glory. We bear his name. We have been adopted as children. We have the name of Christ. We bear his name. He is concerned with his name. That's Jesus' prayer in John 17. Father, keep them in your name. Protect them. So therefore, we ask things in Jesus' name. That's why we finish our prayers often with in Jesus' name. It's not like that's a magical tagline that then unlocks God for us, but rather it's just a reminder that we are asking, not in our name, we bring nothing to the table. We're asking them in Jesus' name. We are in Christ. So therefore, what a wonderful thing it is to come before God the Father asking these things in the name of Jesus and knowing that he will answer because he is concerned with his name. He has a deep concern with his name. So this is the foundation for prayer. Petitions that are based on the perfect and righteous character of our Father, having a deep concern for his reputation, not for ours, almost a reckless endangerment of ours at the, for the sake of his. That is a glorifying thing for the Lord and a realization of the privilege we have in asking these prayers in the name that is above every name, the name, the reputation which God will never give to another. So when we ask these things of the Lord, we can be secure in that. I'm reminded of one more psalm as I finish in Psalm 85. This is a wonderful thing for us. When we think about Daniel's prayer being that the sanctuary is um, desolate, it's destroyed, God's people seem destroyed. When we apply that to us, we know that we are, as Paul says, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the, uh, the body of Christ. And I think one of the struggles for us, as I mention a lot, is this idea of apathy, just how easy it is for us to just go through this monotonous routine of religiosity. And people can look in and, of course, never ask a reason for the hope that is in us because we just look like everyone else in the world. So why would they ask a reason for the hope? But to ask a reason for the hope in us suggests that there is something different. And I think part of that is just a people that are so enthralled with Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 85, the psalmist is praying to revive, to revive us. So the psalmist says, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? so that your people may rejoice in you. The psalmist is saying, will you not revive us again? Why? 
so that we can rejoice in you, not so that we can go off and live our own fantastic lives, but so that we can rejoice in you because that brings glory to you. And so that's a wonderfully bold prayer that we can ask in this apathetic world that we live in to say, Lord, revive us, revive our hearts, make us concerned for the right things. So therefore, and and to just the liberating way where when we bring this before the Lord, we are saying, Lord, this is totally up to you. I can't manufacture this in any way. I am totally dependent upon you to make your face, to shine upon me, to show your goodness, the infinite measure of goodness. Just show me a pinch of it and that'll be enough for me to explode with joy so that I can rejoice in you, so that I can be satisfied in you and so bring glory to your name. And when we ask this with this foundation for our prayers, It's the same pattern of Daniel. We take ownership over our sin. We ask for for a true sorrow that gives birth to genuine repentance. And we ask for the Lord to revive us, to make us glad in him so that we would rejoice and so that he would be glorified. And God delights in taking frail, weak jars of clay like you and me and making them satisfied and glad in him and sustaining us so that we would give all of the praise and all of the glory to him. What a wonderful, wonderful thing.